This is the Night News on QC Pod. I'm Samuel Lee. QC Pod features the people, projects, movements, and ideas that make up the Queens College community. To learn more, visit us at queenspodcastlab.org/qcpod. On this episode, Abinadon Gaba speaks to Dr. Glenn Hubert about changing international dynamics around the world and creating economic opportunities domestically. Dr. Hubert is the former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors and the former dean of Columbia University Graduate School of Business. Join us for understanding the modern world through the perspective of an economist. So, firstly, today we have Dr. Hubert with us, who is the former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors to President George W. Bush. So, Dr. Hubert, I just want to start off by asking, how was your time working with President George W. Bush? Well, it's very interesting. It's a great question. Um, I'm an academic economist that have been so my whole life, and working in public policy does give you a chance to touch on interesting questions. You know, the Council of Economic Advisors is a very small organization, but punches above its weight in public policy in most administrations. And during my time there, there was the recession after the dot-com bust. Uh, big tax bills that President Bush had in mind. He'd asked me to work on projects regarding our relationships with Japan and Argentina. There were major corporate accounting scandals. So it was like having constant plates spinning in the air all the time. Yet I came back as an academic with a lot of really good policy questions. And I I think economists can play a really good role uh, at CEA uh, and have over the years. So you obviously oversaw President George W. Bush's uh, tax cuts, and you saw some oversaw some of his tariffs. So were there any times when you disagreed with him, or were you uh, frustrated with the policies his administration were taking? Well, particularly tariffs, and you know, sort of famously so. I was the person who who was opposed. I I still remember the day of the meeting on the tariffs. Um, I said to my wife, I was all ready, and she said, you know. Uh, the whole world is divided into economists and real people. And you look and sound and act like an economist right out of central casting. George Bush is a real person. So be careful. And I knew how smart the president was. I wasn't going in with Econ 101 arguments about why tariffs are bad. I assume he knew those. But rather, I showed him two charts. One had a graph of a declining labor share and he said, you know, that's the declining manufacturing labor that I'm, I'm trying to stop. And I said, sir, I just showed you agriculture, 1900 to 1940. Are you telling me it would have been your goal to put everybody back on the farm? And he looked puzzled, and I could tell I'd made some progress. Then I showed him a chart of job losses that would be projected at the county level as a result of the steel tariffs. And he said, how? job losses. I thought we were protecting jobs. And I said, no, you're protecting steel jobs. But remember, a lot of industries use steel. So you're going to lose many more jobs. I left feeling that I'd really gotten them on those. And yet he went the other way. He called me in and said, you know, I agree with everything you said. And I said, well, you did the opposite. And he said, because you didn't tell me anything I could do to help people left behind by technological advance and globalization that affected the steel industry. And he'd given speeches in the campaign trail promising he would do something. And I, I felt honestly as an economist that I learned more from him that day 
than the other way around. That as a profession, we were, you know, on our um, intellectual high horse, which is correct that free trade is good, but without, you know, saying, well, what would you do to help people who are buffeted by it? So you also advised Mitt Romney and then Jeb Bush, and uh, you were involved in politics afterwards as well. So during the Trump administration, we saw a lot similar things. Instead of steel, it became coal. So did you ever feel frustrated that economists were once again being ignored? Or, you know, historically, we've seen tariffs being imposed again and again throughout history. You wrote that in your book that it happened during the Great Depression as well. Yeah, I, I think that, well, in the Trump administration, I think there were economists like Peter Navarro that actually supported the tariffs. I think the Trump administration had a, a good record in some economic policies. I certainly supported the Tax Cut and Jobs Act and some of the deregulation, but the trade policy was just awful. I can't imagine any serious economist who would have supported the Trump administration's trade policies. But there too, I think where economists didn't do themselves a favor is saying, well, what's our alternative? So if we want to get more openness, whether it's to trade, to immigration, whatever the controversial issue is, what are we gonna do to address the legitimate concerns of people who feel left behind by forces that are bigger than they are. And I would put at the top of that list, actually not trade. I mean, the biggest force that's affected the American economy and labor market in the past several decades is actually is uh, technological change, followed distant second by globalization. But economists haven't done enough to say, well, what could we do to bring everybody together? So, we saw, obviously, President Trump and his economists having some uh, some tariffs. So one of the primary issues today in America is that there's a lot of political divide. And whenever an economist says that immigration is good or uh, tariffs are bad, especially to, to the far right, they get very frustrated. So how exactly can an economist portray economics without creating political chaos? Well, I think you want to uh, talk about the whole story with people. So go back to, uh, I can look at you and tell your favorite course in college has been Econ 101. It's everybody's favorite course. And, and probably whoever taught Econ 101 for you did say things like technological change makes us better off, trade and openness make us better off. But I'm sure that person probably also said, that doesn't mean that every single person is better off. That means collectively we're better off. And the way economists normally talk about it is the gains are so big that the gainers could compensate the losers. And so as a society and a democracy, we should vote for that. The problem is we haven't been doing that. And by compensation, I don't mean that people who win from technological advance or globalization ought to write checks to people. I mean that we ought to be more concerned about opportunities for everybody. So I think if economists want to talk about immigration or trade or technological advance, rather than just reminding people that openness to change is good, Adam Smith himself taught us that, say how we're going to get everybody in the boat. You know, if you think about the phrase all in, traditional conservative economic thinkers put the emphasis on the second word. So all in, meaning you want everybody to be an entrepreneur or to take risks or whatever. But another version of all in puts the emphasis on the first word, all. That is to have all in. 
And it turns out that Adam Smith himself meant both of those. Uh, the Wealth of Nations, which is the book that everybody knows and, and hopefully people still read, is the sort of beginning of thinking of the modern economy and capitalism. But the same Adam Smith wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments, his favorite book, actually, which was more about what in today's words we call empathy, caring about others in the economy. And I think that's where economists missed a step. If we had described ways to enhance opportunity for everybody while we're doing the openness, whether that openness is to technology or to trade or immigration, I think we'd be doing ourselves a favor and certainly the body politic a favor. So in your book, you mentioned, you mentioned social insurance, which is pretty much a program to help people who are being left behind. And now with your uh, so-called, I guess, empathy economics. So th that raises the question, firstly, what's the difference between general welfare and social insurance for people? Well, let, let's take a step back in the context of the book. So my book was called The Wall and the Bridge because when you have... Um, growth, which is what we all think we want. We want our future, our children's future to be brighter. That's natural. But modern economic theory doesn't have a model of neat growth. It has a model of messy growth, of disruptive growth. There is no theoretical model that's going to tell you that we're going to grow in a way that makes everybody happy. It's always going to be a lot of churn that accompanies growth. The political response to that kind of churn tends to be either a wall or a bridge. And a wall is potentially literal, put a wall on the border, but more likely metaphorical against trade, against immigrants. The alternative to the wall can't be do nothing. The alternative to the wall is building bridges. Uh, and, and this gets to your, to your question because, you know, a bridge is something that takes you to something over water uh, or a big land mass, but it also brings you back. So taking you to something is about opportunity, you know, getting people with the skills to succeed in the economy that actually is not the one that they wish it was. And social insurance is getting you back. So for example, what do we do when people become long-term unemployed? What kinds of programs could reconnect them to work? Because, you know, after all, most of our programs in the United States were designed for an economy where you might lose your job for two or three months in a business cycle and get the same job again. That's, of course, not what's worrying people. What's worrying people is whole job categories disappear or firms disappear or industries can disappear. And that is a different problem. So we need something different. The traditional welfare is not tied to work. And what is important, going back to Smith or to my colleague, um, Ned Phelps, a Nobel laureate, who's talked passionately about rewarding work, people need to feel connected to the economy. They need to feel like they're participating in it to have value and dignity in their own lives. And, and we need a system of social insurance that promotes attachment to work. And so that's, that's the difference. So you've said how social insurance insures people who are who don't lose their job for three months in a business cycle, but it, th their entire job disappears. Right. There's a, there's a a town hall where President Obama says some jobs aren't coming back, and a couple of months later, Hillary Clinton during her campaign says that she's uh, coal miners are not going to get their jobs back, and we all saw what happened during that election. Democrats got annihilated to say the least. 
So how exactly do you tell people their jobs aren't coming back and we have to train you for something else? They're, and how do you make people believe the government right now when this disbelief in the government is so high? I do think people are hungry for real truth and transparency. For years, we've taken Columbia Business School students to places like Youngstown, Ohio, and Decatur, Alabama, to actually have these conversations with workers who've lost their jobs, with business leaders, with uh, social services leaders, uh, looking at social pathologies that accompany job loss. People are looking for a future. And promising people that you're going to make it 1955 again is just meaningless. And it's not a partisan statement because both, both parties have had politicians go into parts of the country and promise that. So rather than accentuating the negative, though, we could go in and say, we are going to advance new industry. We are going to train people for that industry. And we're going to support you during this period of transition. And we'll do things that economists might want to uh, look to scans at, things like place-based aid, where we've seen pockets of very high long-term unemployment and not a lot of geographic mobility. We're going to go in and, and help those places. So I, I think that there's a lot that we could be doing, but it does people a disservice to tell them, you know what, we're just going to make it 1955 again, because it's, it's not true. And they don't believe you when you say that. So in West Virginia, a lot of the local school districts are were funded by the coal mine industry. So how do you not only train the new workers like coal miners, how do you ensure that the future generations have other skill sets and are going to college, especially when the infrastructure isn't built around college or higher education? Well, it's a great question. Um, first, at a very high level, we have to support transitions in the economy. Uh, some of those are going to be related to energy mix, coal in the context of environmental policy, for example. Some are related just to advances in technology and where it means production uh, ought to be located in the country. To my mind, as the educational institution I write about most in the book, community colleges really are the foot soldiers here. You know, if you think about what institution in the United States is capable of training at scale, both younger people uh, preparing for entry into work and older people who are looking for a new career, it's the community college. The problem is community colleges in a lot of states have been very underfunded, both absolutely and relative to their four-year peers. And when I hear things like, well, why not just have free tuition? Well, that does nothing to solve the problem. So remember in the 19th century, the US uh, had a massive program to build land-grant colleges around the, the country. And the purposes of the land-grant colleges were two. One was to democratize education so that you didn't have to just go to elite expensive schools. And the second was to help the transition in the economy, which in those days was between agriculture to manufacturing. Today, we're talking about among categories of manufacturing and manufacturing to services, community colleges are great with that. And community colleges are also very good at working with local businesses to say, what kind of jobs do you need? What kind of people are you trying to hire? So I think a big block grant to community colleges is a very tangible way that the federal government can help states, whether it's West Virginia or others, uh, train people at scale. 
But in order to get kids into community college, you have to get them through the public education system. In states like West Virginia, which has been a notable example at this point, is that those school districts usually rely on local and state taxes. But as the industry has declined, so has their tax revenue. So should the federal government go in and start giving more grants to the public education system as well? Yeah. And basically, when I referred to place-based aid, that's exactly what I meant. Things that would promote the viability of the labor force and local business services, to my mind, are a legitimate use of place-based aid. There are a number of economists who've been working on proposals uh, like this. And it's a very important, it's an important part of a transition. You know, you can't, you can't uh, fault voters for being upset if you go in and say, we want to take away your state's biggest industry, but we're not going to tell you what to do about it other than go move to Nashville or Orlando. Well, that's not really a sellable proposition for a lot of people. So I, I think that I hope that in the 2024 presidential campaign, we could see potential presidential candidates from both sides of the aisle give their ideas about how we might deal with this. You know, I was watching the presidential debate from like the 1970s, and they asked the same questions that they asked in 2020. So you're, you're very oh, yeah. hopeful. Yeah, no, we're not we're not doing well here. Yes. In your book, you, you mentioned that the goal of the businesses should be to have mass flourishing, to, to flourish, as you say, all in, to have the emphasis yeah. in all. What exactly is all? Because people are always going to be upset. So. How much is all? Is it 85%, 90%? What is it's that? Basically, like? the, it's a great question. And it's the idea that everyone should be a participant in the economy. You know, when, when sometimes um, conservative politicians celebrate uh, the entrepreneur, and rightly so, but not everybody's going to be an entrepreneur. But there's the kind of risk taking that each person does in his or her own life about changing a career or a different kind of educational aspiration, an all-in society should really make that possible. Smith didn't view, when Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations, it was a radical book because it said, you know, the mercantilist system of the day, which said the stand, the wealth of a nation is gold and silver and how much money the king has. Smith turned that on its head, said, no, 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 no. The wealth of a nation is the ability of average people to consume. And when you put that together with the theory of moral sentiments, it really is a statement that everyone uh, is in. And, and you can think of mass participation, mass flourishing is that possibility. We once did this in America. So in the middle of the Civil War, Lincoln did the land-grant colleges, the Transcontinental Railroad, the Homestead Act, as World War II drew to a close, uh, President Franklin Roosevelt uh, envisioned a GI Bill that would help large numbers of men and women come home and be trained for the new kind of jobs that were actually there. So we know how to do this. We're just not doing it. So interestingly, use examples of Lincoln and FDR. But back then, there was a very different economy. Someone, mostly people who participated in the economy back then or higher levels of the economy, you were usually uh, not women or people of color. So how exactly do you incorporate an ever diverse America in this new economy? It's a, it's a great idea. Uh, and it was actually, as I write about in the book, it was a struggle with the land-grant colleges and with the GI Bill, uh, both of which uh, were affected by Jim Crow 
restrictions in the South that limited educational opportunity for Black Americans. And we have to do better than that for major initiatives today. Community colleges are already our most diverse parts of tertiary education in the country. And by focusing on the supply side, like Lincoln did, like build these institutions, help them get people through, that's the best we can, that's the very best we can do. Got it. So now I want to go over to your, uh, you also serve in the U.S.-China Economic and Security Commission. Can you speak a little bit about your time over there, please? Yeah, it's an interesting commission because it has appointees that are made by the Democratic Party, some by the Republican Party, and has a remit both to look at uh, geopolitical sort of defense security issues, but also uh, economic issues. Uh, the commission publishes its um, hearing findings every year. And for people who are interested, you can go to their website. And it's actually a pretty interesting set of discussions that gets had. Our relationships with China, be they economic or, or geopolitical, over the past two decades have changed a lot. And both on the business side and obviously on the military defense side, you know, there's a lot more concern about China. So I think what the commission has tried to highlight are what are some of the key economic issues going forward that the U.S. and China have to deal with. I'm not one of those that says the answer is to just decouple from China for everything for two reasons. First, there are many areas of trade with China that aren't particularly sensitive, and I don't see why we would care. Um, more importantly, there are global problems that we can't solve without China. So for people like myself who've done a lot of work on climate change, that's not a U.S. problem. You know, the atmosphere doesn't really care where the emissions come from. We can't solve that without China. And we need some kind of cooperative mechanism that brings China on board for pandemics, brings China on board for climate change. So if we go around just saying decouple, 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 we're not going to get there. So I actually took economics of climate change last semester, and I've always had this question. I hope you can answer it. If I'm Nigeria, and I haven't contributed a lot to climate change, what incentive do I have to get away from fossil fuel and slow down my economic growth because of climate change? Well, it's a good question, and it has an easier and a harder answer. So the easy answer is you're going to choke yourself if you're not careful. If you think about pollution levels in India and China in the past few decades, that alone has driven the Indian government, the Chinese government, to become more serious. But the deeper question is, what do we in the West owe? And I do believe we should be leading in technology transfers. There is um, a piece of good news that doesn't get talked about enough, that the costs of technologies to deal with climate change and the cost of renewables are coming down. And we are going to be at the cusp of a technology revolution. And we need to help other nations come along with us rather than just preaching and saying, well, we grew burning fossil fuels, but you can't. That's not a winner. So I, I do think we need both the reminder to the countries it's in their own interest to do it, but second, to help. So you've said the price of renewable technology is going down. Now, obviously, solar panels are still very expensive. Storing so solar energy is very expensive. So the government in America has subsidized that with the Inflation Reduction Act and other subsidies. Do you think that government subsidies are the solution or should we remove the subsidies and let the private industry compete? 
I think you need both. I, I don't think the subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act are as effective as they might have been. They're also uh, an important element of protectionism involved too and leading to trouble with our European allies, let alone China. So I, I think that's a problem, but I do think you need government um, basically helping taking some of the risks to crowd in private capital. You know, think about a lot of these projects as a set of cash flows. And some of those cash flows are gonna be very risky and government can be a good bearer of that risk. Some of them are less risky and the private sector can come in. So I, I don't think it's an either or. So what incentive would the private industry have to come in if there's if it's less risky, there's less to gain. For example, uh, I'll use the James Webb Telescope as an example. SpaceX wouldn't do that mission. They have nothing to gain from it. Yes, yet it's very risky. So what at what point does the private industry say, okay, this is profitable, yet it isn't risky? Could, could you just provide an example of that? Well, I think private sector is willing to take most, there's two kinds of risks. There's private risk and there's externalities. So I was speaking before about externalities. You're asking now about private risk. I think Private capital is certainly willing to take big private risks. Big example would be shale. So we have a huge industry in the United States, an incredible amount of private risk. It was all born by private capital. Where public policy has screwed up, in my view, in that area, is by periodically threatening the industry. You know, shale is a high marginal extraction core, a high marginal extraction cost source of oil and gas. So that if you were to threaten uh, windfall taxes, then you're just going to crowd out all the investment. Because I'm, I only win in good states of the world. So in that sense, public policy hasn't been helpful. But I don't think there's a problem with the private sector doing private investments. Where the private sector has a problem are externalities, because there's no private gain for me for fixing climate change. Right. So you're going to have to give me an incentive to come along. So there is that argument, which uh, exist if the private industry should handle climate change or the government. So should the government directly intervene or should the government give an incentive to the private industries to intervene? What exactly should happen? Well, it's worth stepping back. So in 1970, Milton Friedman wrote a very famous piece that completely revolutionized corporate law and the way economists thought. And he said the social responsibility of business is to maximize its profits. Full stop. And if you read the fine print of what Friedman was saying, he was assuming just in Econ 101 land that all markets are competitive. But putting that aside, he was also assuming that government did its job. So he assumed government provided the optimal level of public goods like education, R&D, and so on. Government also um, solved all the externality problems. So the question is, what if government doesn't? And that becomes hard because no one business can fix the problems that government isn't doing. So that's why I say that incentives that lower costs of renewables, lower costs of, of compliance are very important second best, to use an economic term, solutions. The right way to deal with climate change is to have a carbon tax. Now, if we're going to say politically we can't do that, then we need to think about these other mechanisms. Would a carbon tax be as profitable as a cap and trade system or as, as beneficial as a cap and trade system? It depends. The advantage of a carbon tax is it's very transparent and the revenue goes 
to the government to either fund projects, to redistribute. Uh, cap and trade systems can be equally efficient. The problem is they can also be rent-seeking mechanisms in the government. So I prefer a carbon tax, but I don't think politically we're close to either one. So in your research, you've also you've often advocated for deregulation, but you would support something like a carbon tax or the Fed in its interest rate taking or a bank in its, in its interest rate taking into account climate change. Well, sure. I mean, the the if you have an externality, as we clearly do, the way to do that, we you know, again from Econ 101 is to have a carbon tax. Banks, I assume, in their private interest, take into account climate change. I mean, why would I want to hold a credit? that I thought was at risk because of climate change. So you don't need a regulation for that. I mean, a bank would do that in its own selfish interest. Got it. So now I just want to step back. We went very far into climate change here. You said that many areas of trade with China are insensitive. So during the Bush administration, President Trump enforced tariffs on steel. And then President Trump did the same thing with China. Do you think those tariffs were sensible or sensitive or not? They were completely wrong-headed, completely wrong-headed. First of all, we could have gotten steel from countries that are not politically sensitive to the United States. Uh, the Trump administration was using national security as a premise to go after Canada, for God's sake. So, you know, the Trump steel policies were just completely wrong from soup to nuts. And if you asked who paid for them, well, we did. So I had a colleague, Amit Kandawal, who wrote a very famous paper with other colleagues showing that basically 100% of the burden of the tax fell on Americans. That brings me to my second question. Very bluntly, Trump still won a lot of those votes from steel miners, uh, sorry, steel companies, uh, employees, and coal miners. Do you think Americans care about results or actions? Well, I think both. I think what had frustrated the American people for a long time were statements from both political parties that, oh, I got your back, but nothing ever really happened. I would hope that results are important. By the way, some of the people who supported Trump on that did win. I mean, domestic steel producers did win. The country lost, right? all of us lost. But it's a classic rent-seeking grab, like supporting sugar or anything else, where the producers uh, gain at the expense of the public. So I'm not surprised that steel companies support steel tariffs. I mean, that's not news, but it's it's not exactly good economic policy. So I think there's, in order to wage this war, it's going to have to be coming up with an alternative. That's why I said the alternative to the wall can't be laissez-faire. It can't be do nothing. It has to be a bridge. You have to go tell people. Here's a better way, and it's real, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm sure you grew up when America was number one. There was, well, maybe you, I think you grew up during the Cold War, so you grew up, grew up in a different era. I grew up when America was number one. The Cold War was over. America's always been number one. Do you think that eventually there's going to be a point in time where America cannot compete with China economically or China's economic influence? No. China, I mean, the way I think about it is um, if I could choose a country, I had to take all its assets and liabilities, all its pluses and minuses. I can't cherry pick. There's no question I would take the United States. China faces demographic headwinds far larger than the U.S. 
it faces a financial system that is a very poor allocator of capital and is massively um, misallocating funds. And its authoritarian system really um, eliminates the chance for sort of spontaneous innovation that people like Friedrich Hayek spoke so well of in modern capitalist economies. So while I absolutely worry about China geopolitically, I do not worry that China is going to be overtaking the United States. If it does, it will be because we did something wrong, not because China did something right. That brings me right into my second question. Do you think America is doing something right? We we saw President Trump renegotiating NAFTA, calling it a great deal. It was really NAFTA 2.0 with some changes. Do you think America is doing anything right right now, or is it just going in the wrong direction? I think America is doing a lot right. If you look at underlying potential for productivity growth in our economy, it's because of the energies and imaginations of millions of men and women, um, what Hayek would have called the person on the spot, um, making decisions and innovation. All of those people are what gives me great optimism for the country. Our problems are not science. Our problems aren't even really economics. Our problems are politics, meaning the political economy of the country is stuck in a very bad place. And that can derail what I just said. I'm hopeful that enough political leaders come together with an alternative vision that captures people imagine, people's imagination. But uh, I'm absolutely optimistic for the country's future. One of China's biggest issues, as you mentioned, is its demographics. China recently, for, the, for another year, it saw a declining birth rate. More people died than they were born. In America, one of our greatest advantages is our immigration policy. America has relatively stayed young to a lot of developed countries because of our immigration. However, we're seeing this very big resistance right now where, where specifically the far right wants to change how immigration works in our country. Do you think that an immigration reform would put America in danger in its place as a superpower? Well, I think we need an immigration reform to restore that. In other words, I think we need more immigration in the country. And the problem is, uh, politically, two discussions are joined as one. So there's two different discussions about immigration. One is high-skilled. So my school, in which I teach, half of our students are not Americans. My goal would be all of them work in the United States. And it's not because I'm a nice person. It's because I'm fundamentally selfish. I want the smartest, best men and women in the world want to live where I live and work where I live. That ought to be our goal. Uh, but that's a rarefied group. So now you're talking about elite universities and graduate students and sciences and things like that. Hopefully, there's not much disagreement there. I mean, we why wouldn't we want every smart person to be in the United States? The other discussion, though, is about low-skilled immigration. I don't think people worry that allowing... Um, overseas scientists that come to the United States is somehow going to make American scientists poor. But I do think there's a concern for lower skilled workers that they're going to fare more poorly if there's open borders of low skilled immigration. And by the way, they're probably right. Meaning if we're going to think about immigration reform for low skilled work, 
we need to couple that with some of these bridging or opportunity-based policies for everybody. Otherwise, it's simply, it's simply not fair. But unfortunately, when you say the word immigration, the politician is defaulting in his or her mind to the low-skilled case, whereas most business people or academics, they're thinking of the high-skilled case, and we need to at least split those conversations. We need both. You made a very interesting point that caught my attention. You said that your goal is to have a lot of your all the students at your business school to stay in the United States and yeah. companies to retain them. I remember a couple of years ago, whenever I looked at the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank, actually the World Bank's an exception, but or the United Nations, any international organization with a lot of power or uh, any major bank or corporation, the one common thing is of whoever was in charge, the executive, was that at some point they were educated in America. Now that's changing. Do you think America is losing its power in education, and is that going to economically hurt America in the future? I don't think it's happened a lot right now, but it clearly is a worry. You know, for example, here we haven't seen any decline in overseas application or matriculation of students. Uh, but I do worry that a country that bills itself as being anti-immigrant runs that risk. We should want to educate the smartest men and women in the world, and we should want them to work here after they're, after they're done. That should be our goal. And American educational institutions need to fight in Washington to make sure that that message is heard. So that brings me to my next question. Given the political tension today, the anti-immigration rhetoric it, for low-skilled immigration, of course, what really is the future of globalization from this point forward? Well, I think globalization still has a lot going for it. If by globalization you mean a high watermark globalization of, say, the 1990s, early 2000s, probably not. Uh, and actually, the peak of globalization was before the First World War. So we, we go through these periods of a lot of globalization, less globalization, but there's still enormous demand for global services. There's an enormous demand for supply chains that make sense. Where these things happen, I think people confuse sometimes the discussion of globalization with the discussion of China. A lot of the globalization in the past couple of decades has been very China-centric, and that is going to change. But the idea of globalization, I don't think so. You're gonna see more regional trade, but I don't think you're gonna see balkanization. It's simply not efficient. So it'll be different than the globalization we saw, but we will still have globalization. It does raise questions though in policy circles about how do you manage that at home and how do you manage institutions like the World Trade Organization? Those are all perfectly legitimate questions, but I don't think we're gonna go back to a world of deglobalization. Do you think the playing field is going to change? For example, when NAFTA was negotiated by President George H. Uh, w. Bush and Bill Clinton, Mexican farmers took a very hard hit. Now, NAFTA was renegotiated by President Trump, and things are changing. Do you think there's going to be a point as other countries grow, they're going to say, just like America, hey, we don't like this trade deal, it's not fair. Do you think they're going to start moving away from America if they think the trade deal isn't fair towards them? I don't think so. I think we need more of those trade deals to even have that discussion. We need to be doing more with the European Union, with Japan, to reinvigorate the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So 
I see this as fertile ground for new trade deals. As a political matter, though, unless and until we fix the domestic opposition problems, we're just wasting our time. I remember you mentioned the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I remember during the Obama administration, this was a deal that was going to happen with a, couple, a dozen Asian countries to, to lower tension, uh, China's influence, to decrease it. And President Trump came in and he said no. And then they eventually incorporated China into the trade deal. So do you think that the not having the Trans-Pacific Partnership hurt the United States? And do you think most, President Trump was wrong? It most certainly did. And by the way, Hillary Clinton also said she wanted out of TPP. This was oh. unfortunately something they both agreed on. And by the way, Biden has not been good either. Um, unfortunately, protectionism, both parties seem to like. The goal of TPP was never really to lower tariff barriers that much. It was to be a counterweight to China. And I, I think the problem was the way it was talked about with the American people wasn't accurate for what TPP was about. And maybe you need to change the name. I'm not a marketer, but I do think something that brings U.S. influence back strongly in Southeast Asia is very important for us. I think if they named it the America First Trade Deal, it has a solid chance of passing. Yeah, maybe. That, there you go. Right. So going forward from this point, do you think there's a different way that economists can talk to the American people? Like you said, you're not a marketer. Do you think that economists should learn how to market their, their values and their thoughts in order to sell them to the American people? Well, I do. And I think it's kind of back to the future. You know, economists were, have been trapped for a long time in the neoliberal paradigm in the post-war period. I think of Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek as probably the intellectual avatars. Both men won Nobel Prizes in economics for their work. That said, the classical liberals, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, you know, they had a, a broader conception of the economy. And somebody that many students don't even know, Carl Polanyi, a man who's not an economist, but a sociologist whose work speaks a lot to these problems. He reminds us that um, an economy is not the same thing as a society. And when I, the reason I love when my colleague Ned Phelps, you know, brings back to life Smith's notion of mass flourishing, it's this notion of there's something bigger that people are looking for. It's, it's that participation. Economists do have a lot to say about that. And we need to talk about that, not just gains in GDP on average. So the not just gains on GDP per average doesn't only apply domestically, it also applies internationally. In a couple of years ago, America was Africa's biggest biggest trading partner. America no longer is. It's not even close anymore. China is by a large margin. How does America get its footing back in the world to show that, uh, without angering Americans, to show that America's back and America wants to play a role in the development of the future of the world? We need to draw a difference between what we're doing and what China's doing. We should be about building soft power that empowers institutions in those countries. So for example, in the Bush administration, I worked on something called the Millennium Challenge Program, Millennium Challenge Account, which was trying to encourage um, institutions that would facilitate capital formation. And I think we can be doing that as a country. And it's different than going in and saying, I'm gonna own your ports and you're gonna pay me the rest of your life, which is the Chinese proposal. So I. I think that there are 
ways Americans can become engaged. And I worry that our elites have become so afraid of voters' populist reaction that we think all soft power is bad. And that's just not right. We could be doing a lot. And if we don't, we're ceding ground we shouldn't see. Right. I just had a quick side question, just out of my head. I've always I always wanted to ask this question for someone who came in contact with any, contact with any president. Was President Bush the smartest person you've ever met? No, but that's not what makes you a president. He's very, very smart. Um, but no, but IQ is not the only thing that makes a president. Otherwise, you know, like physics professors would always be our presidents, right? Uh, much of being a president is about um, understanding the story of the nation, where it needs to go, and leading men and women to go along with that. So it's just a very different skill. Right. Because I, I always grew up listening that the, the president was the smartest person in the world. I remember that. As oh, well, that's not been my impression. But again, it means depends to what you mean by smart. To get to the top of politics, like business or anything else, you have to have a lot of emotional intelligence. And that's very important, too. So as we close off this interview, I want to ask, as a young man, you did your bachelor's, you did a double bachelor's at the University of Florida, and then you went to Harvard. So the University of Florida is a very prestigious college. The University, well, the University of, of Central Florida, to be clear. Sorry, University of Central okay. Florida. It's very prestigious. But it's obviously not an Ivy League college. Do you think that ever held you? Because we're, we're, we go to Queens College, which, which is a regional college. Do you think that not going to an Ivy League college ever held you back from your potential? No, not one bit. I was really blessed to have fantastic teachers in college who spent a lot of time with me. I think I... I learned a lot. I took advantage as much as I could, and I took advantage of other resources. So, uh, absolutely not. You know, the path to um, graduate schools and professional success is really open to everybody. It doesn't really matter. It's kind of a dirty little secret. Some people think if I don't go to college X or Y, I'm toast. Well, that's just false. Okay. What advice would you give to a college student right now who's not going to uh, their dream college? I would say figure out what it is you are interested in intellectually and want to do and take advantage of everything that place has to offer and everything around it. So if you're going to college in New York, New York does a lot to offer in addition to a college. Um, most colleges around the country are located near other things too. So I. I think, I think you have to be focused and take advantage. There also can be networks of alumni and friends of the school who are very keen to give a helping hand to people who went to that school. So reach out, do the best. What advice would you give to someone who's interested in becoming an economist and following the path that you've taken? I think economics is a huge part. And it's also a wonderful major. You can uh, go to work in business, you can uh, go to law school, business school, uh, even study to be an economist. I was interested in economics because of the questions. You know, I, I wanted to know why some societies were rich and others were poor. I wanted to know why so much growth happened in the Industrial Revolution but didn't happen for centuries before. I, I was drawn by, by big questions that I thought economics could help me with, and it, and it did. And I've I've never looked back. I, it's my favorite subject. 
Is there anything else? You've accomplished a lot in your career. We could probably talk for hours. But is there anything else that you want to accomplish before you retire? Oh, my gosh, yes. Become more physically fit, get more involved in things that I like to work on outside. I, I'm on the board of um, Resources for the Future, which is the country's premier environmental think tank. That's a great passion of mine. Uh, helping the Boy Scouts has always been a big passion of mine. I myself was a scout, trying to give that opportunity to as many now both young men and young women uh, in scouting. So I think there's a lot for any of us to do in society. Were you an Eagle Scout? I was indeed. Both my sons are Eagle Scouts. That's impressive. That is very impressive. Well, thank you, Dr. Hubert, for joining thank us. Today. Thank you. My pleasure. You have been listening to QC Pod, the podcast about all things Queens College. We are on Twitter at QC Pod and on the web at queenspodcastlab.org slash QC Pod. Abinadon Gabba produced this episode. Our theme music is Lake Monsters by Johns Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. I'm Sammy Ali. Thanks for listening.